www.ghostbusters.com, the number one listener-supported radio station in the world. The opinions expressed on this radio station, its programs, and its website by the hosts, guests, and call-in listeners or chatters are solely the opinions of the original source who expressed them. They do not necessarily represent the opinions of Revolution Radio and FreedomSlips.com, its staff, or affiliates. You're listening to Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com, 100% listener-supported radio, and now we return you to your host. along your host, I invite you to step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights, covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. Tonight's a very special night. I have I have two guests tonight, which I'm thrilled with. Um, joining me tonight are Janet Walter and Alan Butler, authors of a new book called America, Nation of the Goddess. And it's an amazing book. It's exciting. It takes you on a journey that is unexpected. It starts in one place and ends in a place you totally don't expect it. And I would challenge you to listen to them explain their book, read it, and not change your perspective as to how and why the United States was founded and, and what it actually represents. Janet is a writer and a historical investigator. She lives in Minnesota, and Alan Butler is a writer, researcher, and, recon- and a recognized expert in ancient cosmology and astronomy, with many books to his credit, more than I will even attempt to list, but they do include the Hiram Key Revisited, Civilization One, and City of the Goddess. He's appeared on Ancient Aliens and The Mystery of History and America Unearthed, and he lives in Yorkshire, England. Welcome to both of you to the show tonight. 
Thank you. Hi, Hi Barbara. Nice to be here. I, I think one of the first questions that one has to ask when when one recognizes that you aren't exactly next door neighbors is is how the heck did the two of you first meet and then how did you how did you find and uh, recognize that you had a, a similar uh, fascination with a singular topic that that nobody would imagine Janet well we met due to my husband's television show called America Unearthed, in which uh, Alan was a guest on Scott's show. And we had read many of Alan's books and were very excited to learn that he was an expert on Templars and Cistercians. And that's why he was brought on the show. He showed Scott an amazing abbey over in his neck of the woods across the pond. And that's how we first met. And then we began talking because we had a lot in common. And I'll let Alan tell you what really got us going. Okay. Well, um, Janet and I, uh, as Janet said, had known each other for quite some time, predominantly because of Scott. And Janet did a lot of research with Scott, was a very knowledgeable, very intuitive person. And um, one day we happened to be having a conversation and the word Grange came up just a strange word grange um and janet was telling me that the grange in north america had been an organization about which she will tell you more as the program goes on uh which was to do with farming and farming families uh and which was set up just after the american civil war and my ears pricked up straight away because i'd just got back from a trip to ireland to a place called new grange uh, where I'd been filming again with Scott. And Newgrange is um, a chambered tomb, which dates back to about 3,500 BC. So it's one of our older monuments across here in the British Isles. Um, and I knew that that particular place was called Newgrange because the land upon which it stands had belonged to a group of monks called the Cistercians. Uh, they were formed in the 1100s, and they were pretty unique as monks go, because instead of begging money from uh, the surrounding communities, as medieval monks often did, these guys used to work for themselves. They were farmers, and they used to raise sheep predominantly, and they ended up being colossally rich. Uh, and another thing that set them apart from other monks is that they were allowed to have uh, other establishments at some distance from each abbey, uh, which would be uh, farms, and these farms were called granges, and that's where the word grange came from. So I mentioned this to Janet, and we started to compare notes about these two different forms of the grange, and we discovered, to our absolute surprise, and this was not our surprise for the first time in our research, but we discovered that there was a connection. It, that's It's amazing, and, and I... I I have had the honor of being able to visit at least a Grange building, and um, they were all over the country early, early on in, in America's history. And the the thought of how how do you um, if you want to go in just a little bit to the Grange itself, um, it, the purpose of it, and and how it how it does compare and reflect to you know the the um, 
the Knights Templar and the Masons, and how, how does how does it make that connection? Because from your you start out with the Grange in the book, and you end up at a very unusual place. So I mean, you <laughs> literally cover thousands of years here. <laughs> we well, do as, indeed. Yeah, as we've got a little bit of time, I think Janet should tell you about the American Grange because it's such a fascinating story. Okay. Okay. Well, um, it it all started after the Civil War, and Oliver Hudson Kelly, who was a man originally from Boston, but now a Minnesotan Minnesotan after the the Civil War, was making a name for himself as a book farmer, where he hadn't learned farming from his family and grown up as a farmer, but had taught himself about farming. And he was starting to apply science to farming, which was really a new concept. So Oliver got noticed because he was writing articles for different journals and things, agricultural journals, and he got noticed by the Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. He was also a Freemason, and the Department of Agriculture hired him to go down to the southern states and do a survey and try to find out how things looked among the farm families, how they were doing, what their potential was for, for, for actually generating more than just subsistence crops so that the extra food could be sent up to the cities in the north, which were now firing up with factories and such. So Oliver did that. He went down there, and he was very surprised and no doubt saddened to see the condition of farm families in the south. Now, you have to remember the Civil War was extremely devastating to the men, right? So right. a lot of them were, a lot of the farms were being run by women and these, you know, and children. And the families were just in a, in a very sad state. So in order to, I guess you would say, gain the trust of some of the farm families and the farmers down there. He used his status as a Freemason to begin talking with other Freemasons, which overrode the whole North-South thing. And that's how he started interacting with them. And he did his surveys and reported back to the Department of Agriculture. And at some point, I don't know exactly when they decided to do this, but he and six other Freemasons decided they wanted to do something to help these farmers get back on their feet and these families. So what they did is they mimicked the Freemasonry order, and they formed something called the National Grange, the Order of the Patrons of Husbandry. And they used this to get the farm families back on their feet. Now, have you ever heard, Barbara, the, the, the phrase Freemasonry is about making good men better? Yes, definitely. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, I think the idea here was to make good families better and to bring them together. And, and that's exactly what happened. And the Grange took off and it just kept going and became a huge institution across the country it, it did a lot of good for families, but there was something very unique about it, and that was the role that women played in the Grange. Women were not part of Freemasonry, traditionally, 
But in this order, they absolutely are part of the Grange and, and always have been. They had the vote just the same as men did 70 years before they actually had it legalized across the country in our national votes. So an amazing thing, they, they also had um, a certain percentage of the officers had to be women, and they venerated within the order several different goddesses that are related to agriculture going way back thousands of years ago. And I'll let Alan tell you a little bit more about that aspect of it. Okay, well, um, life is full of apparent coincidences, which turn out to be nothing of the sort. I'm sure you're already aware of that, Barbara. Absolutely. And um, what what first occurred to us was this uh, Freemasonic angle to the Grange. I mean, most people who are in the Grange, even today, would not necessarily be aware that they're following the rites and passages of Freemasonry uh, because the kind of rituals that they do are uh, apparently quite different from Freemasonry. And as Janet said, uh, there's a very strong feminine quality to them as well. But the reason that we were so intrigued right from the start uh, was because, as I said a few minutes ago, about the Cistercian Granges. Now, the Cistercians um, were a very democratic order of monks, if you um, joined an order of Cistercian monks and became a, a choir monk, uh, when you were in your particular abbey, and there were well over a 100 abbeys in the end, you would have a vote on anything that took place in the abbey, the same as all the other choir monks. And you would help to elect an abbot, um, and the abbot would be in charge of your abbey. And every year he would travel to daughter houses, which had been made from that abbey, and also once a year he would travel to a place called Cito in France, uh, which was the headquarters of the whole Cistercian order. Now, we discovered that the Grange in America has a similar sort of setup in that if you go to your local Grange Hall and you become a, a Grange member, um, then you can be elected to be the representative of that Grange at state level. And at state level, um, a representative or representatives um, are elected from the democratic right of all the people there to go to the national uh, Grange, which is in Washington, D.C. So it seems straight away that there were similarities in the way the two organizations were uh, comprised. And um, we also had the fact that they were both called the Grange. But if I can go back for a moment to uh, my starting point, which was in Southern Ireland at a place called Newgrange, the reason that that uh, site is called Newgrange is because the whole area uh, was uh, one time given to the Cistercian monks of Mellifont Abbey uh, in Southern Ireland, and um, they put one of their farms right on top of this um, burial mound, this chambered tomb, and we think it's very likely, uh, as a result of our research, that they actually had dug into this tomb. Um, and we noticed um, that the Cistercians often came into possession of land where there had been um, ancient monuments. It was as if they were obsessed by them. And there were other connections as well. The Cistercians were absolutely sold on the Virgin Mary. The Virgin Mary was the most important thing to them. 
uh, in their religious life, and all the abbeys were named after her. Um, so there was a very strong feminine consciousness. Also, the Cistercians gave rise to this group of fighting monks who were called the Knights Templar. And we know that the Knights Templar gave a lot of what they believed ultimately, much later in history, to Freemasonry. So there we are. The connections are starting to build and build. And two organizations which seem entirely divorced from each other by happenstance and by time turn out to be very closely connected. Yeah, it looks like it's a template or a pattern for creating an organization that is focused on equality that, that yes. truly has come Absolutely. through yeah. yeah. through 2,000 years or so, yeah. or so, give or take. Yeah, and, and we shouldn't be confused about this. The Grange was utterly, utterly revolutionary at its time, both on your side of the pond and on my side of the pond. As Janet said, it would be many decades before women got the vote, and yet from the very offset... Women officiated at Grange meetings. They took on the names of these ancient goddesses, the most potent of which is Demeter. And we'll come to that in, in due course, because that's very important as well. Um, and they had absolute um, equality with the men at these meetings. And the, be- the meetings were all the better for it. For example, no strong drink was allowed. They didn't use bad language. They simply got together decided on things which would help farmers and farmers' families. And perhaps just as importantly, they had a good time. The kids had the chance to dress up and to be kids, which I guess at that time in those places would have been very difficult under any other circumstances. And it had a very strong maternal feel to it. Uh, And that's one of the things that came across to us straight away. You're quite right, Barbara. Well, it also... You know, we 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 hear we hear people talk about life used to be better. It used to be different. It used to be uh, freer. And and it seems to me that that um, that there is a yearning, <coughs> excuse me, a yearning to return to that kind of a time where we work together as a unit and and as equals. Where where um, today that that just isn't the case anymore. No, you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. And of course, this, this takes us back to the very, very ancient past, because all of this is seated uh, at a time when that monument in Southern Ireland and so many other monuments across the British Isles and France were first built. And we know from um, articles that we've found from the remnants of religion um, that at that time there was a very strong balance as far as the Godhead was concerned. And you couldn't really call it the Godhead because there was a balance between a god and a goddess. The goddess always represented the earth and the god usually represented the sky, but they were in balance. And it's likely that to those hunter-gatherer people uh, before farming came along, um, that both deities were equally important to them. They were part of the same whole. And... uh, This may well have reflected in society as well. And it looks as though, although it was so many thousands of years ago, that women probably got a better deal than they have done (laughs) even in the fairly recent period. Well, you know, I find it fascinating that that in these times of all sorts of turmoil and everything, when when everybody's looking for, for truth and for freedom and for understanding, that 
that suddenly there is almost coming out of the mists of time, the remembrances of and, and and certainly the templates of what we should be striving for. It's almost as though we've lost as a species, we've lost the direction in the way. And because of, of the new, they're not, well, they're, they are, they're new discoveries because of the awakening of the understanding of the past the pattern is there for us. Well, I would I would say you're right, and and you know going back two thousand years at, at least, we've been in a very patriarchal system, and right up through the Middle Ages, the Roman Catholic Church was in charge, the monarchs of Europe were in charge, and and that wasn't the way things were for thousands of years before that. You know, as Alan said, things were in balance. There was God and goddess that kept things in balance and were revered that way. Well, you you mentioned, you know, in in your title, too, um, it's the goddess that keeps, you know, flowing through all of these organizations. And, you know, we're we're coming to a time, I would hope, where where the goddess is going to re-enter our culture. Uh, But but going back, way back in history, (laughs) the goddess played a more important role than than sometimes the god because after all she gave birth that's oh, right yes. yeah absolutely there's no doubt about it um i think the god was not uh to these people an ever-present reality he was in the sky he was often represented by the sun he was a bit intimidating a bit frightening whereas the very earth upon which they lived they considered to be the body of the goddess herself um, and it was mothering and it was nurturing. And um, so although one of the things that Janet and I repeatedly say uh, is that we don't believe there ever was a time when there was just the goddess, she was obviously in everybody's backyard and in everybody's home. So she was the one that people turned to when they were having difficulties because she was much more approachable. Um, and she brought all the food, and um, she didn't uh, just give birth in the form of uh, human beings and animals to young. She gave birth, because she was the earth, to absolutely everything that these people needed. Absolutely. Now, in the title of your book, um, which I found fascinating, um, you mentioned the Venus families, and and explain to 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 us as an audience as best you can what the what and who the Venus families are and how they have been present since the very beginning. Janet, do you want to start this? Sure, sure. Well, we use the term. This is a, a, a term that Alan and well Scott too, and that we all coined based on Venus the planet because Venus has always been thought of as the consort of the sun or the goddess in the heavens. And if you pay attention to what Venus does in its cycles, it's really amazing and quite interesting. It follows the sun when it's a morning star part of the year, arises just before the sun, I should say, in the morning. And then when the sun sets, if it's an evening star for the other half of the year, then it follows the sun a couple of hours later and it's the third brightest object in the sky after the sun and the moon 
So it's always been the representative of the goddess to humans through time immemorial. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we use the phrase, the Venus families, which we, we call the group of families that we believe have secretly kept this ancient faith alive through hundreds, if not thousands of years. I have um, coined a phrase in the distant past. Um, I talked about the golden thread through the tapestry of time. The Venus families is only the most recent name we've given to these people. We have no idea what they call themselves, because even though we have a pretty good idea of who some of the Venus family members are and were, um, they're not given to admitting the fact. Um, and the reason for that is quite simple. Uh, there was a time in the not too distant past when if your religious views uh, varied from what was allowed, then you could end up being imprisoned and executed for your beliefs. And we are talking about something that goes back thousands of years in terms of the way it appears in the Grange movement in America. It goes directly back to um, a place called Eleusis, which is near to Athens in Greece, where every year um, thousands of people came together to undertake what were known as the rites or the mysteries of Demeter. Demeter is one of the most potent names of the Earth Goddess. And people would come from all over the known world at that time to take part in these mysteries. Um, we don't know exactly what took place because they were um, sworn to secrecy on pain of death. All we know is that many, many people entered a temple in Eleusis at the beginning of a night in September, and by the time they emerged again the next day, they all declared themselves to be very, very different people. Now, all of the, uh, or a lot of the panoply of, uh, of events that took place uh, in Eleusis, believe it or not, are played out in the various um, ceremonies that are held in the Grange movement in America, and the names of the goddesses remain the same. So, the Grange in America is a simply a manifestation of a group of people who have been around for thousands of years and who keep appearing, as I said, like a golden thread through the tapestry of time. Uh, the Venus family is a very, uh, Venus families is a very appropriate name, but it almost certainly is not the name that these people call themselves. Okay, well, maybe a better way of putting it, rather than not, who are they? What are they? And, and I don't mean, what are their beliefs? I don't mean, they're not aliens. That's not where I'm going. Um, it's their, it's their philosophy. It's the, the paradigms that they live their lives by that, that seem to be what flows through time. So it, it doesn't necessarily, you know, and I, I put that guardedly, it doesn't necessarily mean it is a bloodline that goes generation to generation to generation. Is it more or less a state of consciousness and and philosophy that would declare someone a member of a Venus family or not? Uh, I think so. I, I think there is aspects of both. I think there are families who have generation to generation kept this this faith alive and have had goals along with other groups and families to 
bring this back in in some form or another. And yeah, it, 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 from what I what I from what I got got from your book was that they aren't exactly looking to gain power or the spotlight. They're looking to help us to find a greater awareness of our purpose and our destination. I think exactly. it, that, yes, it never has been their intention from what we can see to rule the world. Uh-huh. Though, there, though there have quite definitely been times in history when they took some very strong political and economic steps to gain control for short periods of time. Um, probably one of the best examples of that is during the 12th century, uh, and we see it happening in a place called Champagne in France, where a group of nobles appear to have been part of the Venus families, and they set out to take over the world of their time, very temporarily, to do certain things which started to push the world in the direction they wanted it to go. And let me tell you that the first thing that they did was they managed to get one of their own number elected as Pope. They needed a Pope because they needed uh, a declaration to be made that the Christianity would once again capture Jerusalem uh, which is the most sacred place to several different religions. And that inspired the First Crusade. And once uh, Christianity had recaptured Jerusalem, they put all sorts of other plans into action. For example, the formation of the Cistercian Order of Monks, and also uh, the continuation of that through this group of fighting monks and travellers and traders called the Knights Templar. Um, now, that in itself is an intriguing and long story, but what it proves is, um, on the one hand, they tend to sit below the surface of society. They're always very influential. They're always in powers of influence. And when we start to talk about America and about Washington, D.C., we can see how influential and powerful they've been. But you're quite right, Barbara. Their intention has never been to command the world but to nudge the world into a more equitable and fair direction. They have sought from the start to create what they themselves have called a new Jerusalem, which is not necessarily uh, a Jerusalem in the Old Testament or New Testament biblical sense of the world, but a place of freedom, a place of uh, democracy and a place of fairness, um, both in a political and in a gender sense. Yes, and I would I would say democracy, and you know it, it it was very paramount to them, the right for people to live in balance with each other and to yet have individual rights. Yeah, and they don't they don't though they have from what I from your book, from what you wrote. I mean, they they do not necessarily adhere to any particular religion and what the the line that you've written often in the book is that they have left um, hints and clues in plain sight for us to sort of follow and pick up on and help to connect the dots for us on this journey to a greater awareness as to ways that would be that would bring greater harmony to the entire planet and the species. They have indeed. And it, it started 
with Alan's previous book to our book called City of the Goddess about Washington, D.C., and I'll let him tell you what he found there that was amazing. It's, it's important, before we go any further, to understand one of the biggest connections between um, our findings, and that relates to a man called Alexander Tom, who was a professor of engineering at Oxford University um, just after the Second World War. Um, he was a man who was very, very interested in astronomy. Um, he was interested in sailing. Um, he was a Scot, and as a young man, he'd sailed around all the locks and the seas of Scotland. And he'd noticed uh, all the standing stone circles uh, and the stone arrangements, which um, overlook many of the locks and the coasts of Scotland. And he wondered, because of his interest in astronomy, whether or not these uh, monuments had been used in some way to track the movements of the planets, and in particular, he thought the moon, uh, in order to become better navigators. Because if you know what the sky's doing, you know what the tides are doing, and it can be extremely helpful in terms of navigation. So in his spare time, of which he had quite a lot, he started to survey and measure as many of these megalithic monuments, standing stone circles and um, stone avenues and tombs as he possibly could in order to see if there was this um, astronomical connection. And he discovered over a long period of time, 30, 40 years, and having measured literally hundreds of these uh, sites, that indeed they did track the stars and the planets. And for that, Professor Tom became known as the father of archaeoastronomy, which is the study of history uh, in terms of uh, the cosmos. But on the way, he also discovered something else. Uh, because he had so much information, because he had so many statistics, he couldn't help but notice that all of these monuments had been built using the same linear unit of length. We use the foot or the meter or the yard, but these people had used a unit which Alexander Tom called the megalithic yard um, in um, terms of uh, modern measurement. It's 2.722 feet in length um, or 82.966 centimeters in metric. Now, the academic world um, scorned Alexander Tom because they said, how could a basic unit of measurement that never varied from site to site have been used by pre-literate people for over 2,000 years and remained absolutely intact? And so myself and a, a colleague, Christopher Knight, set out to try and work out what the megalithic yard was, how it had been established, and what it might be part of. And we discovered that it was part of a really big, all-encompassing measuring system that measured time and distance and space and mass and just about everything. And it was based upon the actual size of the Earth. And um, we wanted to know, uh, Chris and I, if this megalithic yard had survived or if, as we suspected, it had disappeared around about 2000 B.C., but we came across it completely by accident in a city in the south of England called Bath. Now, most of um, Bath was built in the 18th century, and a lot of it, 
uh, relies upon this unit, the megalithic yard, which we thought had disappeared. Um, those parts of Bath were built by a man called John Wood, who we knew to have been a Freemason and also a member of the ancient order of Druids. Um, there was one particular structure there called King Circus, which was uh, had the same dimensions as Stonehenge. Um, but the problem was that uh, John Wood had died when he was very young, so his works in Bath were reasonably restricted. We subsequently found a great deal about his training and about the places he'd been and this um, tremendous fascination he had for history. But we couldn't find any other examples of the megalithic yard in a modern context in Britain. What we needed was a city that was built around about the same time as most of Bath was built, that's in the 18th century, and which was a new city in which we knew had been influenced by Freemasonry. And the city we hit upon was Washington, D.C. And once we started to look at that, we found the megalithic yard and megalithic geometry everywhere within the city. And it was at that time, after I'd written um, City of the Goddess, that Janet and I got together, and that's when the real discoveries started to come in. Yeah, I now... The Freemasons and Knights Templar, so so that so that this unit of measurement has has truly been used, but not used overtly, uh, so that you know people are aware of it so much. But but it is still in use today, apparently. Yes, it's like everything else that the Venus families have done. Uh, it's quite plain to see if you know what you're looking for, but it's also hidden in plain sight. Mm. Exactly. Because, Alan, didn't you find that the the degrees of Scottish Rite Freemasonry are represented using the megalithic yard distances between certain important things in Washington, D.C.? Yeah, yeah. should explain that uh, the megalithic yard is just one tiny part of a a huge and um, fully integrated measuring system which measures the earth. And we went on to discover, Chris Knight and I, that a unit of 366 megalithic yards appears quite a lot in the ancient monuments. Uh, And that's because this is part of a geometry of the Earth. So that 366 megalithic yards, they would have considered to be one second of arc of the Earth's circumference. And what we found more or less straight away in Washington, D.C., was not just the megalithic yard itself, but the fact that practically every structure in the original city as it was first planned uh, was uh, designated as being apart from each other by given units of 366 megalithic yards. But the epicentre, the the hub where everything came from, uh, was a, a most unlikely place. Just south of the White House in Washington, D.C., is a large park, which is called the Ellipse. And um, I discovered, first of all, with Chris, and then uh, much more so with Janet, that the centre of this Ellipse, which apparently is just an empty um, park, uh, is where all these measurements radiate out from. So all of the major landmarks of Washington, D.C., central, um, are a given number of units of 366 megalithic yards from this point at the beginning of, uh, sorry, the middle of the ellipse. And um, it seems gradually across time since the city was first designed 
that each degree of Scottish Rite Freemasonry, of which there are 33, is designated by the distance from the centre of the ellipse to one of these particular statues or monuments. And it has to be said right from the start that what really fascinated us and what fascinates Janet and I to this day is the proliferation of statues in Washington, D.C., which depict different forms of the goddess. And all of these things gradually came together and caused us to look at all sorts of phenomena associated with Washington, D.C., and then eventually other cities, which convinced us that some very powerful people had been at the heart of these designs. Um, Well, well, Washington is the District of Columbia, and, you know, there is the goddess right there. That's right, and it's between what two states? Maryland and Virginia, right? Yeah, the goddess seems to be creeping in here over and over and over again. Well, you know, it's really, but then that begs the question, the goddess being so important and going back thousands and thousands of years, um, she was certainly venerated far, far more greatly than, than she is today, for sure. Why did she disappear from, from everywhere? Why, why did she, why did the goddess go underground? Well, part, partly because it was it was forced upon people when religion became something that was forced upon people, and that goes back, you know, two thousand years to in in Europe to when the Romans took over. So you couldn't you didn't even have the right to have freedom of thought about religious beliefs. But didn't didn't. Didn't Mary take upon that role of the goddess in, in religion at some point? She did, but she never quite made it to equal status with the male. Oh, that's Mary, Mary was very useful, Barbara, uh, to people within the church who were not of the church. And we're talking now again about the Venus families. Uh-huh. Mary was the, uh, obviously, the Virgin Mary was, in biblical terms, the, the mother of Jesus and therefore was known even by the Catholic Church as uh, the mother of God, because Jesus uh, was as one with God. Uh-huh. Now, um, lots of people venerated the Virgin Mary. Uh, in the, on the island of Malta, in the Mediterranean, for example, I saw that there are 365 churches on Malta, and almost all of them are dedicated to the Virgin. But she was very useful to the Venus families, because it was quite possible to go to church and to worship and venerate the Virgin Mary uh, without getting yourself burned at the stake for doing so. So she was really the goddess component within religion. Later on, that role was taken over by Mary Magdalene, which um, Janet will tell you more about. Uh, But I think uh, if we go right, 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 right back in time, we find out that one of the reasons all of this happened uh, was probably when when, um, hunter-gathering gave way to farming. Um, It has been suggested that there was a time when people had no idea that there was a relationship between sexual congress between people and the birth of a child. It sounds ridiculous to us now, but but it's quite possible that they didn't associate the two things. And women were very much venerated because they produced the offspring. 
But once hunter-gathering gave way to farming and people were keeping livestock, they saw the cycles of nature in a very different way. And uh, men then understood uh, where children actually came from. And once that happened, because they had physical power, they started to take on the spiritual power as well. And the paternalistic religions began to develop. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, get, I, I got so carried away, I forgot to stop thinking. Um, so, so the goddess is, is, but, but I'm, I'm seeing in, in my travels and, and even in my community that there is today a greater, um, acceptance and, and almost understanding of, and, and I live in the middle of farm country. So, um, so it, it seems like she's, she's re-emerging into our everyday life. Um, certainly Wiccan and, and, and pagan, um, cultures, you know, honor the goddess, um, above all else. And so that, so that she's, she's coming back into the, the light and, and, and kind of, establishing a greater balance uh there has been a falling off of of major religions and and a a going towards more of a naturalistic spiritual foundation these days well I, yeah I, I think you're right barbara and I, I think it's something that has been somewhat cyclical over time where it it picks up again and tries to reemerge and sometimes it's successful in certain pockets or areas and then sometimes it, it you know we take two steps back again so well i think the I, important thing too is that it isn't it isn't a feminine over masculine or a masculine over feminine it's a blending of the two absolutely so that, so that there is a balance and and a greater focus towards you know moving forward yes and if we, and if we can look at america for a moment we can see right from the inception of America as a free nation that this was a deliberate intention on the part of the founding fathers. Although America considers itself to be a deeply Christian country, in fact its origins are not based in Christianity but in no particular religion at all. And it was the wish of the founding fathers that no religion would be allowed to predominate, that people could believe whatever they wanted to believe just as long as they were working towards the common good of the society in which they lived. And many of the founding fathers themselves declared themselves or were declared to be what's known as deists. Uh In other words, they believed in a godhead, but they didn't want to stand up and quantify uh, what the nature of that godhead was. And Janet and I believe that part of the reason for this is that lots of them were... Uh, very much aware of the presence of the goddess within religion. But even in 18th century America, you couldn't really stand up and say that without getting yourself vilified. <laughs> no, that's true. But especially those who were Freemasons at the time, because it, it seems to me that, that the more you learn, the more you understand that that there is more out there than a, 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 an independent religion. I mean, it, and I'm not against religions; they're they're fine and they serve their purpose for sure. But um, if you're if you're looking at creating a country, you you have to go beyond 
the small self and 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 embrace the larger self which which you know doesn't um doesn't make you know doesn't doesn't play favorites i guess is the better way to put it exactly and that and that's why as alan said it was part of what they wanted to accomplish was to make sure there was a separation of church and state and and they did that and that was something that was unheard of in the world at that time you know when you when you think about the fact that 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 they're they're fighting this battle for freedom and then they suddenly think holy mackerel you know we have to create something you know okay we win the war but then what do we do and and to to see all of these freemasons just sitting there and and thinking okay we have a blank canvas we can we can create the best of all possible worlds here. Well, was- and, and, and Barbara, you're exactly right. But Alan and I are convinced this was something that was planned for a very long time. And it was, in fact, a great experiment. Well, they, they tried to get their independence a couple of times before they actually <clears throat> finally got it right. Absolutely, especially down in Virginia. Oh, jeez, Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think um, we can see that the, the, the uh, precedents, the, the planning for what happened in America had been played out in Europe as well. It was clear that what these people wanted was to create, you know, this new Jerusalem, this place of equality and fairness and democracy. And they tried time and again to do it in Europe, but it couldn't work here because of the power of the kings and the power of the church. And so Janet and I think, you know, with good evidence that quite a few hundred years before the real brave experiment of a free United States came about, that plans were already being laid to make it so. Uh, Right back to the days of the Knights Templar, we're convinced that the Knights Templar, who were great travellers, had Uh visited the United States, had built up relationships with local populations in the United States where you live yourself in the East, Barbara, there are many structures which show just how much influence Europe had upon the United States. Um, in fact, it's quite likely that people from Europe have been travelling to North America uh, not not just for a few hundred years, but for many hundreds of years. Oh, you've got you've got the the tower in Newport. You've got the St. Clair family on. Um, coming to this country and and you know they they didn't come here i don't think to explore i i think that that basically they were looking for a place to start building a new utopia a new jerusalem whatever you want to call it but but they were looking for again a blank campus and mm-hmm. um it does appear that that you know it, hundreds if not thousands of years before columbus um, there, there were there were groups of people here scouting the territory. They used to um, they used to play a, a statement that I'd made on um, a lot of the documentaries in America uh, because I said some years ago, uh, never mind Columbus, every man and his dog had been to the United <laughs> <Yes>. States. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true, and you know how how um, how how very. What's the word I'm looking for? How, how very um, limited 
your 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 understanding of of the world would be to think that that you know I am the first to have set foot on this ground. I mean, please. Yeah, I don't think even Columbus thought that. Not by any stretch of the imagination. Columbus was using maps that uh-huh. came from that came from an institution which had replaced the Templars. Um, in Portugal, um, he knew exactly where he was going. And in fact, in Britain, not far from Bath, the city we were talking about earlier, is the city of Bristol, where, uh, which is a great seaport and um, a great fishing port as well. And it is said that right back to the 16th century and before that, in fact, fishermen from Bristol were regularly travelling to the Grand Banks to fish for cod. Um, and America was... Um, a secret only because everybody had their own vested interest and they weren't about to uh, kill the goose that was laying golden eggs. So it was only secret in the sense of uh, we don't want to tell everybody because they'll start exploiting the resources that we found there. Yeah, no, amazing. And, and the reality is the United States was already populated. So well, that's know, right. It, it wasn't lost you know, it, it, they, 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 you know, they, they took it over. They did away with the indigenous people as best they could. But, um, but the early ones that were here visiting the Vikings and the Templars and, and whoever, they, they, they had a kinder way of blending in with the indigenous people and trying to be friends with them and trying to understand their ways, which is what the pilgrims should have done. We, well, yeah. Yeah, we we recognise this greatly, um, and we know from what we know about the Venus families that uh, they will have been heartbroken at some of the disasters that happened regarding the indigenous population of America because um, Janet and Scott in particular have done so much work on this, and we know that the early members of the Venus families, in the form of the Templars particularly, tried desperately hard to integrate with the local population. And as you say, Barbara, they had a different way of dealing with the situation altogether. Well, I would suspect, too, from from how, um, especially the Iroquois and some of the other tribes here, they were, they were very well-established. And, and I would think that amongst their people were those that would understand what the Venus family was trying to do. Well, I, I think early on when the Templars were coming over here, they were probably coming in around the St. Lawrence Seaway. And that was primarily Algonquin tribes, the Mi'kmaq, which frequently are pronounced as Mi'kmaq people. And those seemed to be the ones that were intermarrying with the Templars. And we believe that was absolutely purposeful. And, and they had common elements within their ways of thinking, as you said. You know, they, they had this duality thing going, the balance between men and women, and your balance with nature, and it made sense. And, and in fact, the Smithsonian, back in the 1800s, uh, an agent for them documented that some of the rituals that the natives were doing actually matched exactly what was going on in Freemasonic rituals. So there was contact and these things were, were happening that caused these two groups of people to become bonded through blood uh-huh. and, and through 
the order of Templarism. And it certainly would not have been the Venus families uh, that started the troubles that followed later, um, but a lot of other people who came along who were not, uh, as it were, in the fold of the Venus families, didn't have the same intentions, um, land grabbers and so forth. And it's an unfortunate byproduct of taking the New Jerusalem to North America that the indigenous populations suffered so badly. But this has been um, in the minds of the Venus families, even in their designs uh, of Washington, D.C., um, we're going to go on to talk about some of the major alignments um, within yeah. Washington, D.C., and um, some of the more modern buildings that have been built there. And um, uh, we know, Janet and I know, that the Museum of the American Indian has been placed in Washington, D.C., as being absolutely central on one of these alignments. Right, Janet? Yes, it is, and it's amazing. Yeah, well, these the Venus families, you know, as we said before, aren't focused on power, they're focused on enlightenment. That's right, that's right. And and they aren't doing it in an overt way, they're doing it in a, a way where they created um, ways of showing it in a permanent setting, such as, you know, the way things are aligned with buildings and monuments and things, to be rediscovered, we believe, at some point in time. Uh-huh. And they're always very clever because they very rarely take center stage. There are times when it may happen. Again, we'll go on to talk about um, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, for example, who uh, was almost certainly a prime mover in the Venus families, and he did gain power. But most of the uh, Venus family members seem to be shakers and movers. They stand in the background and have a great deal of power behind the scenes. And we'll be we'll be back in three to five minutes. in the experience of a lifetime for the Cruise into Spirit and Seminar at Sea, October 15 to the 22nd, 2016. Sailing from Fort Lauderdale, Florida to the Eastern Caribbean on the fabulous Oasis of the Seas, featuring some of the most respected spiritual leaders on the planet, including Lisa Williams, Kim Russo, Don Jose Ruiz, Daniel and Catherine Brinkley, Denise Lynn, Moss Sajani, Susan Shumsky, myself, and many more. Our holistic Seminar at Sea takes place
place on board one of the most extraordinary cruise ships on the planet. A ship that is so enormous and so fantastic, it's a destination in itself. With Broadway shows, ice skating, fountain and diving shows, gourmet food, high-speed internet, spa, free room service, surfing, rock climbing, zip lining, and so much more. Delight in a conference at sea with some of the world's greatest spiritual guides. Enjoy seven days of pure bliss, sailing into spiritual awakening and higher awareness. Visit magnificent tropical ports of Nassau, St. Thomas, and St. Martin. Participate in awesome spiritual workshops and activities. Practice yoga, qigong, and sacred dance. Enjoy vegetarian, non-vegetarian, vegetarian or raw food nightly ufo watches under the stars make new friends gain greater wisdom and create memories that will last a lifetime at www.cruiseintospirit.com when you register for this spectacular seven-day cruise seminar please enter my name sean david morton www.cruiseintospirit you'll cruise into heaven at a time you'll never forget your data safe? Do you have the necessary information to assist you in confidently living through just about any survival situation? Is survival and gardening, off-grid living, medical knowledge, or even natural or man-made EMPs on your list of personal concerns? Do you have your documents and your personal information in a safe place in your hands where you know where it is? Well, check out our preloaded EMP-proof thumb drive. Over 3 gigs of survival documents and how-tos, plus the USDA offline food preservation website, and much, much more, including a surprise bonus we just can't tell you about here. With plenty of room left over to store your most important documents, imagine if a megavirus or computer failure took out your bank, or all the banks for that matter, are your banking records safe in your hands so when they get things fixed and prepared, you can say, hey, look, this is what I had, you have it, I want it back. Is your personal data safe, family records, addresses? phone numbers we'll squeeze on over to freedomslips.com yes that's www.freedomslips.com click the banner on the homepage for the emp proof bullet drive to get the full scoop of everything that we offer so folks keep your data safe for your peace of mind revolution radio freedomslips.com you don't need to expect us we're already here gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent news story, and I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. On the go? Still want to listen? Don't have one of those fancy phones with too many buttons. Don't know what an app is? Or you don't even care? Well, we got you here at Revolution Radio. Now you can dial in 24-7 to listen to our shows. We have a number for Studio A and Studio B. And best of all, it's free. Don't forget, carrier charges for your cell phone provider may apply, though. So check with your cell provider to make sure. So ready? Here you go. Get a pen. Here's the number. Studio A is 712-432-6958. And Studio B is 716-748-0112. Thank you very much for listening to Revolution Radio, freedomslips.com, the number one listener-supported radio station in the world. Knock 
syndicalist commune. We take it in turns to act as a sort of executive officer for the week. Yes. But all the decisions of that officer have to be ratified at a special bi-weekly meeting. Yes, I see. By a civil majority in the case of purely internal affairs. Be quiet. But by a two-thirds majority in the case of more... Be quiet. I order you to be quiet. Look, you stupid bastard. You've got no arms left. Yes, I have. Look. It's just a flesh wound. I don't believe I'm in such a display of courage, skill, nerve, grace, and stupidity. I'll do you for that. What? Come here. What are you going to do? Bleed on me? I'm invincible. You're a loony. The Black Knight always comes. Roundtable Live, Monday through Friday, 1 a.m. till 4 a.m. Eastern Time. Bring your mind, bring your ideas, bring your voice. King Arthur had nothing on us. Yeah, Revolution Radio, freedomslips.com. The opinions expressed on this radio station, its programs, and its website by the hosts, guests, and call-in listeners or chatters are solely the opinions of the original source who expressed them. They do not necessarily represent the opinions of Revolution Radio and freedomslips.com, its staff, or affiliates. You're listening to Revolution Radio, freedomslips.com, 100% listener-supported radio, and now we return you to your host. And Nightlight is back. Thank you for tuning in to Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. Please help us to endorse our efforts and airtime by visiting the station's support page and making a small donation from the station owner to all levels of management, the entire production crew, and every host. We all work without compensation of any kind, except, of course, for the joy of being a part of a very unique and special station, one that supports a true sense of freedom. Any donation, even a small one, is greatly appreciated and keeps freedom ever-present out there for those who seek independent thought, new paradigms, and philosophies. I have been remiss. I've been so into and involved with and excited about this book that I forgot to tell everybody where they can find it. It's at www.nationofthegoddess.com. And you'll find information on both authors there as well. And I can be found at www.barbaradelong.com if anybody wants to look. So I'm glad you're back because now we're going to get into the real juicy stuff. Um, there are it's, – it's fascinating because all of this material leads up to the fact that our founding fathers, many of whom were members of the Venus family, um, took to creating a, a canvas, uh, a, a, a place where – where, where we, where true democracy is something that could evolve and grow and flourish. And, and it, it feels as though their intent was to give us as much freedom as possible. And if we weren't ready for it, they left signs and, and symbols for us to discover when we were ready. And Washington DC and New York appear to be two places where these symbols are so obviously placed that that we stare at them all the time and don't realize just how meticulously Washington DC first of all was was planned out. Alan, you want to take that and run a little bit with it? 
Yeah. One of the first things that we noticed about Washington, D.C., is that it shares something with a lot of very ancient cities, for example, those in Central and South America, in that it is deliberately orientated to the sky. Um, if you look at the National Mall uh, in Washington, D.C., you can see that Washington is an east-west city, um, so that when the sun rises in the east, especially in the middle of the year, which is uh, today, really, because it's um, summer solstice, um, then it shines right down the National Mall. And similarly, at the end of today, uh, it will set shining uh, in the opposite direction. And that in itself is fairly unusual, but it was possible for them to do because, as you said, Barbara, they had a blank canvas. And upon that east-west orientation, uh, they placed all sorts of structures and are still placing structures there to this day, um, which tell their own story if you know what you're looking at. And the very best example, and one that we must get in tonight, um, is the purpose and function of uh, the Washington Monument, and um, Janet ought to tell you about that. Okay. All right. Well, if you look on Google Earth at the Washington Monument, and it was a sunny day when the picture was taken, you'll notice right away that there's a very pronounced shadow cast by the Washington Monument. And I commented to Alan about that one day, and he had mentioned to me that it's funny I should mention that because he had noticed at some some point when he was studying Washington, D.C. for his prior book, City of the Goddess, that the shadow of the Washington Monument around the time of September 17th, on that day, the shadow goes right up the steps of the Capitol and touches it, the, the U.S. Capitol building. And I said, well, that's interesting. And when we looked at it, the date, September 17th, that's Constitution Day. That's the day the Constitution was signed. And it also is the time of the ancient mysteries of Demeter that were performed in Greece that Alan talked about earlier, which are show a, a reverence for the bounty of Mother Earth and the, the, the uh, goddess Demeter. So that was one thing that we thought was pretty amazing, but we wondered, was that just coincidence or is there something more? Does it point to other things? And we were astounded to find a, a few things that it points to on significant dates. And it's not just pointing to them, it actually touches them, the, the very tip of the shadow. So one of those things is about to happen, and that is on the 4th of July. So we thought if Constitution Day was important, perhaps the shadow also does something on the 4th of July, Independence Day. And sure enough, it does. It, it touches something that you probably would not even notice if you didn't go look for it, and it's called the Jefferson Pier. Now, the Jefferson Pier marks something that Thomas Jefferson tried to establish when he was president, and that was a new prime meridian for the United States. So this little pier, which is a, a, a granite, oh, I'd call it a, a small squat obelisk type thing. It's only a couple of feet high, and it sits 
on the grounds of the Washington Monument. So, of course, the shadow is very short this time of year because the sun is so high in the sky. So on the 4th of July, the shadow tip touches the Jefferson Pier. And we found that to be very interesting because the 4th of July and the day that the Declaration of Independence signed is very significant and was, of course, near and dear to Thomas Jefferson's heart. And did you know, Barbara, that he actually died on the 4th of July as well? I actually, I did know that. (laughs) And if there's a way someone can hold off death to die on a certain day, I think he absolutely did that. It's amazing, but that's not the only thing that that takes place with the Washington Monument. No. You know, I I just keep going because it's amazing. Okay, well, so then we wondered, all right, are there things that happen in more modern times? And are people still aware of this? Is it still happening? And if you look at the World War II Memorial, that was built fairly recently, I think about 10 years ago. Uh-huh. And on the two days where World War II ended, there was the Victory in Japan Day, August 15th, the war in the West, and that's when the shadow touches the World War II Memorial on August 15th on the west side of the fountain or the Rainbow Pool, it's called. And on Victory in Europe Day, which is May 7th, it just touches the marker stone for the entire memorial that is on the east side of the memorial. So we found that these things just can't be coincidence. It has to be intentional. Well, what what gets me is the 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 World War Two Memorial was um, its design was was by competition, mm-hmm. so that so that there had to be a, a Venus family member or 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 someone connected to them that had to understand that that there had to be significance as far as the shadow falling and. You know, and it, it, it's just, it, it boggles the mind because especially with those two dates and the pylons there, I mean, it, it someone had to sit down and calculate where those things had to go. And then, and, and we all know what red tape Washington has. I mean, mm-hmm. to, to actually manipulate that to that particular precise place is, is, is truly, um, Awesome. It, it truly is. It never, it never ceases to amaze us, Barbara. Well, it, it, knowing, knowing what the government is today and how convoluted everything is, but, but obviously there are people in place that, that, that are members of the Venus family that are there to, and, and you used the perfect term before, to nudge, to sort of get people you know, moving in that direction. But, but there, there was stuff connected to the Pentagon as well, was there not? Absolutely. But before we mention the Pentagon, Janet must describe to you what to us is the most potent happening from the Washington Monument, which takes place at the other end of the year in December. Right, Janet? Yes. And, and this is really amazing. And I saw it happen, and I'll never forget it. And that is on the winter solstice, so the shortest, darkest day of the year, 
December 21st, the tip of the shadow reaches its farthest point to the north, and it just penetrates the bottom edge of the ellipse, which is the big open park south of the White House. Now, if you think about what the ellipse represents, potentially, allegorically, it looks like a big egg. Uh-huh. Or could this be, you know, representative of the goddess, the womb of the goddess, the egg of the goddess, fertility? And if you think about what the Washington Monument represents, it is the shape of an obelisk. It's not a true obelisk because that would would have been built of solid stone, all one piece. If you uh-huh. look at Egyptian obelisks, but it's very, it was definitely meant to represent an obelisk. And if you stand in the right place, when you're at the tip of the shadow, any given day, if you stand at the tip of the shadow, if you look up, you can see what looks like the sun sits right on top of that obelisk. And it's an amazing sight. So if you think about the power of the sun or the male deity being brought down to the earth via the obelisk, you have an allegorical union of male and female, heaven and earth, that duality, that fertility, the resurrection of the sun coming back as it does after the winter solstice. And it's very powerful. Oh, it must be. And why this is so important um, in historical terms um, is because if you think about it in human terms, um, uh, a conception of a child that takes place uh, on the shortest day of the year is going to produce a birth which uh, occurs in the autumn when all the bounty of nature is available. And it's uh, it has to be a certain fact that our ancient ancestors believed that the winter solstice was really important because that was the time when the power of the sky came down to the earth and when the earth became um, pregnant, if you like, and the bounty of nature is the birth of uh, a result of what happens on midwinter's day. So that's why it's been so important to so many cultures and that the, that the people who designed Washington, D.C. could manoeuvre things in terms of the height of the monument, the placement of the monument, the placement of the ellipse, to do what Janet saw it do. Unfortunately, I couldn't be in the States at that time, but I was watching on the Internet all day. Um, It's magnificent. It's just beyond belief. Now, this park has great significance. It isn't just a, a grassy place. I mean, at one point in time, there were even four baseball diamonds there. And what you pointed out was that that home plates all created arrows pointing to the center of the park. And you want to go into a little bit of about what is surmised to be at the center of the park? Well, we wonder, we couldn't help but wonder, because of all the things that center on the ellipse, including what Alan found previously with Christopher Knight, with the megalithic geometry around the city that all emanates from that point. Plus what we found with this December 21st solstice shadow, that we wonder, is there some kind of a secret vault below the ellipse? We, we certainly know that there's 
a big hole there because when the ellipse was laid out in the form it has now, uh, which was just after the American Civil War, there was lots of army engineers around. And so they decided to tidy up Washington, D.C. And that's when this piece of land, which had been left spare right from the start of the city, was turned into the ellipse we see today. And we know that the officer in charge of this work um, used to report back to Congress on a regular basis as to how things were going on. The same man, in fact, that finished off the Washington Monument. Um, he reported to them uh, on one occasion that his, uh, his guys had laid out the uh, ellipse. Everything was graded. Everything was looking good. But what he couldn't explain was that there was a large hole being dug right at the centre of the ellipse, he clearly didn't know what it was for. He thought it was something to do with what he called the city fathers. Um, so we do know that somebody dug a really, really big hole there. Uh, but then history goes quiet on that, and we don't hear about it again. Uh, and we wondered if um, perhaps some of the uh, treasures that uh, the Knights Templar had brought out of Jerusalem might have been placed there. But it's also likely uh, that the bones of Mary Magdalene uh, could have been placed in such a place because she was so significant in terms of everything that we've been talking about. Uh, we know her bones had gone missing from Jerusalem. Um, so although we don't know exactly what lies below the centre of the ellipse, we're sure that there is something significant there. Well, since everything is pointing there and it would be a place of a birth of a new awakening of sorts, that would make sense. I, I don't. I don't want. I, actually, I, I wouldn't want it dug up. I'd rather just wonder and postulate at what might be there. Obviously, it's a place that that they are protecting and honoring. Somebody is very, very conscious of the importance of the place. I had cause to go there with um, a film crew from Holland. Uh, many uh, years ago now, probably five or six or seven years ago. And um, obviously, because of all that we're talking about, we were interested in looking at the centre of the ellipse because there's a small stone there which marks the um, the centre of the ellipse and also the line of the um, uh, line that um, Jefferson wanted to place there to be uh, the new central line for the United States. And while we were there, uh, at the very centre of the ellipse, which after all is just a great big field, mm -hmm. um, a security helicopter came. And it was there for almost three quarters of an hour. While ever we were there, it was there. When we went away, it went away. When we came back, it came back. So whether we were considered to be potential terrorists or, uh, or whether somebody knew what was at the centre of the ellipse and wanted to know what we were doing. I'm not sure, but it's a significant area. Fascinating. It is, and I can tell you it's very well protected because when Scott and I went there to see if we could see the shadow do its thing on December 21st, we were, you know, asked, Why are you, what are you doing here by the police officers who, who patrol that area? And they were very nice, and they actually got interested in what we were doing, and we had a lot of fun explaining it to them, and they were great. And uh, it, it was an amazing sight. I mean, it has to be said that it's a very sensitive area anyway because it's so close to the White House. But 
there's more to it than that. You only have to stand there and you can feel it, Barbara. Oh, I can imagine. And, you know, let's face it, with, with property value what it is, especially in that particular area, to have that large a park sitting empty is really quite impressive. It's incredible, and it's been there all along. If you look at the original plan for Washington, D.C., that was laid out by a guy called Pierre-Charles L'Enfant, um, you can see that he deliberately wanted to leave this area free, and right in the centre of what is the ellipse now, uh, there is a mark on the original map, which, if you look at a distance, looks like it might be L'Enfant trying to show some... Um, lines of topography, a, a hill or something. But when you look at it really closely under a, a lens, <coughs> you can see that it's actually a copy of the all-seeing eye, which is a very important symbol in Freemasonry. Mm-hmm. <coughs> and there it is on the map. Uh, but it was left vacant. It was known just as the white lot until after the American Civil War. The people that we're talking about are very patient people. Generations don't mean anything to them. So they just gradually fill in the gaps. And they obviously have the, the, um, they obviously have all of time to work with so that they aren't, um, limited to what a generation can do. It's a matter of continuing a process that is a very slow process, but but hopefully we're going in the right direction. I wanted to talk about the Pentagon, too, because wasn't there um, a debate on where it was going to be placed? There uh, was indeed. There was indeed. It was supposed to be placed, uh, I think, uh, on the grounds of an old airport uh, in Arlington. But at the very last moment, literally the day before it, ground was to be broken, FDR changed it to its current location. And his generals were upset with him and said, what, we've got this all figured out? We can't change this now. Yes, we can. I'm the commander-in-chief, and we're changing it. So for some reason, he either learned something or was given information and realized that the Pentagon was key to the final placement of what we had mentioned earlier about the megalithic yard distances that represented the 33 degrees of Scottish Rite Freemasonry mm-hmm. and some other aspects as well, which are alignments from other things. Can and I Alan, take... Sorry, yeah, go John. ahead, Alan. I was going to say, I know you have more to add to that. Go yeah, ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I could just take a moment to explain, because to me this is one of the most fantastic of all the things that Janet and I discovered. We said before that there are all these measurements in Washington, D.C., which gradually build up the 33 degrees of Scottish Rite Freemasonry. Um, now, the Pentagon uh, is quite far out from the centre of Washington, D.C. It was quite unusual. Um, but when it was built, and in the particular area where it's built, and also bear in mind that its measurements are megalithic, it's five times the size of Stonehenge, for example, um, there was something very significant going on, probably in the mind mostly of uh, Franklin Roosevelt, who himself was the 33-degree Freemason. He was aware that the 32nd degree of, of Scottish Rite Freemasonry, in its rituals, deals with a story about a man called Constance. 
Now, Constance is um, uh, a knight, and he, he wants to be made into a proper knight. And in order for that to happen, he has to spend uh, a, a whole day and a night in a chapel on his own. Uh, and if he leaves his post, uh, then he will be pronounced um, a coward and um, he won't be knighted. But in the story, what happens is outside of the chapel where Constance is uh, waiting, he hears a battle taking place and he knows that all his colleagues and friends uh, are out there fighting uh, the enemy. The enemy is not um, given, but we know there is an enemy there. And he knows that women are being violated and he knows that he cannot stay there any longer. Uh, and um, and just look to his own needs. And so he goes out and he fights and he is killed in the fight. And at first he's branded as being a coward for having left his post. But then when his body is brought back into the chapel in this ritual, uh, it is suggested that um, th- what he did was far, far greater because he died not to save himself, but to save people that he didn't even know. Now, if you look at this in the context of the building of the Pentagon, the Pentagon was built in 1941, and it was a means by which all the uh, armed forces of the United States could be administered from one place, whereas before they'd been spread all over the city. Um, And FDR had been trying for a long time to bring the United States into the Second World War. He absolutely detested um, Nazism and Hitler. Um, But at that time, the feeling of the American people was that they should stay out of other people's wars. But with the building of the Pentagon, and within a few months of the building of the Pentagon, America did find itself at war, partly because of Pearl Harbor, but also because Franklin Roosevelt had brought the minds of the people round to the fact that the United States could not sit in isolation. And it therefore did one of the most magnanimous things that any country has ever done. It sent its own young men to die in foreign places, not so much for itself, but for the world. And that is the lesson of the 32nd degree. And once you get the 32nd degree, then you qualify to be given the 33rd degree. um, And the whole thing appears on the ground in terms of megalithic measurements with the building of the Pentagon. It's very difficult to explain, but it's a truly amazing story, Barbara. It is. And, you know, most people don't don't take the time to to recognize and understand what has gone into the, the it, it isn't they just found an empty lot and they plunked a building. There was thought and there was measurement and there was all sorts of stuff going on here in order to get it at the right place to make the right point to hit to 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 create one of those dots that people are connecting to to a, a state of greater awareness within themselves. So but but Washington DC is not the only place that this kind of placement has taken place. No, that's true. And uh, we did stumble upon something else that actually we were alerted to because um, one of my husband's 
television programs, one of the episodes for America on Earth, um, some of the writers of the show had asked me because they couldn't, they can't always talk to Scott. They have to talk to me sometimes because he's out shooting and they know that we work very closely together on a lot of our research. And they asked me if we were aware that there's a real Egyptian obelisk in Central Park. And I did not know that, and neither did Scott. But when we started taking a look at that, um, there was some more research being done by the writers and by us, and there was an article that had been written, I forget the man's name, but several years ago, that where he thought that there was a straight line of obelisks beginning at that point in Central Park with that obelisk that ran south down Manhattan, and this line, he wondered if this was significant based on these three obelisks. Well, when we took a look at it with Google Earth, we realized it wasn't a perfectly straight line. In fact, there's a dog leg, a short dog leg, a small one on the, the center obelisk. And that was a big clue because we realized that, that in fact, could and as Alan, when Alan went and looked at it with his astronomical programs and things, we realized it represented Orion's belt, which wow. was amazing. Because Orion, to the Egyptians, was actually Osiris, the mm -hmm. god Osiris, the god of resurrection. So we found that very interesting, and we kept digging into it more and more, and uh, we found that. First of all, this Cleopatra's Needle, which is this actual obelisk up in Central Park, which is right behind the Met, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, was placed there by Freemasons who, who marched 9,000 strong down the streets of Manhattan the day this thing was placed or its cornerstone was laid. And it, they, it was very important to them, obviously. That happened to be the last obelisk that was placed in this alignment. And that was done primarily at the instruction of William Vanderbilt. And Vanderbilt had paid for the obelisk to come over from Egypt in the late 1800s. And it was a twin. It was an obelisk that had originally been erected in Heliopolis back in Egypt uh, several thousand years ago. And uh, the twin of it sits in London on the Thames River. And, you know, aside from the fact that it cost a small fortune to bring it over here, Vanderbilt actually had to have a boat built so that the obelisk would fit into it. That's right. He retrofitted <clears throat> the boat so that there was a hole cut in the side. The obelisk was slipped in and then it was patched around it because it actually stuck out from the hull of the ship. And at the pictures of it, you can look it up online. It's it's amazing. The the feat of engineering, just getting it over here and keeping it in one piece because obelisks in Egypt are carved from a single piece of rock. And if they broke while they were being made, they were considered unusable. Well, now, when all of these obelisks were actually placed, um they they were they were done so intentionally. It wasn't that they had to just miss 
you know, they just had, the dog leg was created on purpose is what I'm trying to say. Exactly. Exactly. It started with the obelisk and the furthest point south, which was at an amazing place called St. Paul's Chapel. And it's the oldest continually, continuously um, used house of worship in the city. And it's an amazing place. I, we just love going to St. Paul's. Um, it's set at the bottom of the World Trade Center towers and was not destroyed. And that in itself was amazing. It has a great history. Several of our founding fathers were involved in it over during the revolutionary time period, including George Washington. Um, Lafayette came there. I it's it's just an amazing place full of history. If you ever get a chance to go, definitely do it. But there's an obelisk in the churchyard there that's supposed to be for a man named Emmett, I believe, who was an Irish freedom fighter. But Mr. Emmett is not under the obelisk. He's buried somewhere else. So why was this why was this monument erected to him there? It 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 seemed suspicious or interesting anyway and the second obelisk which was placed at a bit of a dog leg from the straight line was the worth obelisk and that was that was an obelisk that is in place as a memorial to general worth and he is actually buried beneath it so when we realized this wasn't a straight line, we got to Alan straight away. And Alan, what did you find that it compared to that you had seen before? Okay, well, in my work with Christopher Knight uh, previously, uh, Chris and I wrote a book called Before the Pyramids. And um, one of the things that really fascinated us was the arrangement of the three major pyramids on the Giza Plateau in um, Egypt. And it had been suggested by a writer called Robert Boval that these three pyramids represented the three stars of Orion's belt. And when I compared the pyramids with um, the three stars uh, in as careful a way as I could through some of the advanced astronomical programs that I have, sure enough, it conforms perfectly to this almost straight line, but with this slight dogleg. Um, and it was a particular significance to Chris and I because very close to where I live in Yorkshire in England, there is an arrangement of three henges. Now, henges are very large circular structures with ditches and banks. They go back to about 3500 BC and the ones near to us, the three near us, are absolutely enormous. You could fit St. Paul's Cathedral into any one of them with plenty of room to spare and they stretch across the landscape for almost a mile and they too form exactly the same pattern so it seems as though our ancient ancestors were not only interested in but virtually obsessed by these three stars in orion's belt because of course as janet has said um orion was actually um osiris and osiris was the god of the sky uh, his consort was Isis, the goddess of the earth, um, and people seem to be trying to draw down the power of uh, Osiris. Uh, in the case of Egypt, um, these three pyramids were very close to the river Nile, um, and the actual sky above reflected in the Nile, and it appeared to form a path which led from the pyramids 
along the Nile, up beyond the horizon and up the Milky Way to the three stars of Orion's belt. And the same situation occurs in um, uh, here in Yorkshire with the three giant henges. But if we were any in any doubt about the representation of Orion's belt in New York, Janet came across the biggest clue that you could possibly find. Ah, yes. Do you remember this, Barbara, about Grand Central Station? Oh, yes. Go, go, go for it. Well, when we started looking into William Vanderbilt, because he was the man who paid for the obelisk to come over from Egypt, and he got to decide where it was to be placed for that honor. And he did, and he put it in Central Park. Well, what we found digging into him is that the Vanderbilts, of course, built Grand Central Station. And Grand Central Station is famous for its starry ceiling, which is beautiful. It has pinpoint lights. It has, uh, it has paintings of the constellations and what they represent, the different names. And this portion of the sky included Orion that's painted on the ceiling of Grand Central Station. Now, the thing that's interesting is that for years, the Vanderbilt family has been criticized because the constellations are all accurate except for one. And which one was it, Barbara? Do you remember that was not accurate? It no, was backwards. I, yeah, yeah, I knew that there was one that was backwards. Orion. Okay. Yep, yep, it was Orion. So we interpreted that that was an intentional clue because the family has always said it's perfectly correct. So, Alan, I'm going to let you explain why it's perfectly correct in terms of how it's perceived, depending on where you're looking at it from. Yes, exactly. In the case of the pyramids and in the case of the three giant henges here in Yorkshire, the layout of uh, Orion's belt on the ground um, is like a mirror image and it looks as though um, they, people who built them intended them to be seen from above, as if maybe the god or goddess was looking down on them. And that is exactly what has happened in Grand Central Station. The stars in the picture are in the right place, but the figure of Orion is the wrong way round. So we get a mirror image, and again, it's the only part of the whole ceiling of Grand Central Station that looks as if it was intended to be viewed not from the ground up, but from the sky down. And no amount of persuasion uh, will make those who are responsible for Grand Central Station admit that there's anything at all wrong with their representation, whereas in fact... There definitely is, and we see this as a very definite clue uh, as to what has taken place in New York in terms of the three obelisks. Well, yeah, I mean, they've they've done a number of cleaning and, and you know, touching mm -hmm. up the ceiling. So, so if they wanted to, they certainly could have uh, switched it around. But um, it, it's an amazing ceiling. Not everybody goes through Grand Central Station and looks up, but it is spectacular if you do. It is, and the fact that um, the guy who did it was not only an artist, I can't remember his name, not only an artist, but also uh, a time-served astronomer. 
he knew the sky extremely well. He would not have made that mistake unless it was intentional. And we're quite sure that it points to what you can see outside of Grand Central Station if you take a walk down the body of New York. So so the obelisks weren't necessarily pointing at anything, but they, they were representative of Orion's belt. Yes, that's true. We're not quite sure about the shadows of these obelisks. They're in a very, very built-up area. The very useful thing about building a city from scratch like Washington, D.C., is that you're on virgin land, so you can do whatever you want with it. New York developed in a different way. Whether any of the obelisks have shadows that point in any particular direction is ongoing work as far as we're concerned. Um, But we think that in this case, in the case of New York, the obelisks represented Osiris rather than um, being used as shadow clocks. But... Uh Never say never, you know, we have so many things still to look at that it's possible that one or other of them might well do that. Now, um, there are certainly hundreds of cities and towns all over this country. And and you have said, um, Janet, that there is a temple to the goddess in every city in America. To what are you referring (laughs) Well, we have said that, and that is because almost every town in America has baseball diamonds. (laughs) I love this. Go go for it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And if you think about it, the diamond has always been a symbol of the goddess. And we have some interesting numbers at play within the game of baseball as well. Think about there are, well, you have... The number three, which is very important in baseball, and the number three is very important in Freemasonry as well. It's something called the rule of three. And you have three strikes, three outs, and you have three times three is nine. That was very significant as well. You have nine innings. You also have the number four, which is important in baseball. You've got the four bases. You've got the square that they make or the diamond. And that's another concept within Freemasonry. That's very important. Um, Squaring their actions by the square of virtue. It's uh, about being honest. And I, I think it's an amazing game that it has so many of these things built into it. And if you look at a baseball diamond from above, it actually looks a lot like the Freemasonic symbol the square and compass. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, shatter everybody's thoughts because Abner Doubleday did not come up with this. No, he didn't. Um, the person who came up with it was um, a guy who was um, a fireman who lived in uh, New York and he was a, a Freemason, um, almost certainly was a Venus family member himself or associated with the Venus families. Uh, and he was the one who formalized what the diamond would look like. Nobody really knows where baseball came from. It's a legacy of probably three or four different games that were played in Europe and that were consolidated in the United States and became baseball. Uh, but the symbolism of the baseball diamond 
um, goes even further than Janet has mentioned in terms of Freemasonry because the physical uh, look of the thing is very similar to uh, statues which are found throughout Britain in very ancient churches uh, uh, called the Sheena Gig. Now, it's very difficult for me to explain exactly what the symbolism is on uh, radio uh, because it's sexual symbolism. But we are left in no doubt whatsoever that the baseball diamond represents the goddess uh, and particularly represents the fertility of the goddess through new birth in each passing year. Um, so there are many, many different connections and we are certain that this was intended right from the start. Well, I, I find it fascinating that, that symbolism in and of itself, and, and certainly this kind of symbolism for sure, is all over. It hits us in our faces every day, and in many ways it is a subliminal trigger to, to remembering. And, and it's, it's, it's just, it's phenomenal how if you really look for these symbols, you will see them all over the place. And it's almost as though time is reminding us to remember another time. I think that's true, but I think it is also uh, what we would call a key. We, uh, just as an example, we have a, a, a nursery rhyme that's sung by children here in Britain, and I don't think it's used in America, but it's called Oranges and Lemons, and it has a tune that goes with it. And um, what it really represents is the sound of the peals of bells in London uh, that every child knows. But the interesting thing is that those churches don't exist anymore in their original form because they were all destroyed in a great fire in 1666. So the truth of the matter is that anybody who can sing the nursery rhyme Oranges and Lemons knows what those churches sounded like, but they don't know that they know. And this is important with a lot of the symbolism that we've been talking about uh, this evening because um, only when you are given the key do a lot of these things begin to make sense? But it's it's fascinating, isn't it, how how these messages are woven into the fabric of our being and we carry the information generation to generation to generation until somebody has that light bulb go off and say, wait a minute, this means something more than I think it does. Uh, that's absolutely true. And as Janet will also say, once you turn that key, particularly in the case of New York and Washington, D.C., then if I can mix my metaphors, the floodgates are open because the amount of stuff that Janet and I have found and that is still coming to light is utterly incredible. Well, I, I think that, that you have to go back to, to Freemasonry and, and beyond that to the Templars and the Cistercians. I mean, they they clearly had... And don't you kind of wonder if before the Cistercians that there was a what was what came before the Cistercians? It didn't start there. It it couldn't have. No, it certainly started um, with the um, the well. It didn't start with the Greeks. It started right back in megalithic times. So we're talking about five five and a half thousand years ago at least. But it was at its zenith 
during Greek times, during the mysteries of Demeter. Uh, it's just never gone away, Barbara. It's been there all along. And, and it finds a way to represent itself in every generation, in every era. Absolutely. It so, does. So that, so that, you know, now we have the internet and stuff like that, but, um, it's, it's just phenomenal. That and the fact that Freemasonry, um, which fascinates me no end, because there is such depth in it and there is so much more in it than, than most people understand. There is a, a, a searching for self-awareness. There's a service to humanity. There's a service to family and, and, and certainly to self, but, but there's so much more involved in it that, that it is something that, um, unfortunately it, it is considered ha, a secret society. Um, so that, so that the, the, the true majesty of it is never really out there. You have to be ready to seek and discover on your own in order to embrace it. That's right. And it, it seems to be a very humble institution as well. You know, Freemasons work quietly to do their good work that they do in terms of um, charities and things like that. They they don't advertise what they're out there doing. And uh, it, it really is all about doing the right thing for society, but doing it in a humble way as well. And it, and it relates very much to the way the Venus families have always thought about things and done things, um, in that there is always more there if you want to look deeper into it. And that applies as much to cities like New York and Washington, D.C., um, as it does to Freemasonry itself, which is one of the reasons why we are absolutely certain that Freemasonry as an institution is a legatee of the Venus families. I would, I would certainly have to agree with you on that. I would say that, that, um, it's, it, in a way, it's a kind of comfort to know that, that this kind of an organization, though it isn't an organization in and of itself, is, it's, it's nice to know that there are still people around who are focusing on taking us further and into a better way of, of living and sharing with each other. And this is so true in the United States. Janet and I and Scott and my wife, Kate, we very recently spent 10 really exciting and entertaining days in New England, traveling around, looking at sites, talking to people, talking to groups, particularly Freemasons. Um, I've never been more aware in my life of, of the kindness and the generosity of people. Uh, as I was amongst the Freemasons. And I'm not a Freemason myself, but I was treated as though I was one. Well, you know, sometimes you don't have to have the label in order to represent the philosophy. No, that's right. That's, true. Yeah. that's right. It's, it's, it's something that we can all emulate. And, well, I have to tell you guys, I mean, I, I want to... Um, stress once more that the, and she reaches for her notes. Um, the website, the website is www, you know, 12, 12 pages of notes. Nationofthegoddess.com. 
Um, it's, it's an amazing book. It will take you on an amazing journey, and you'll wonder how the heck can all of this come out of um, granges in the United States. But trust me, there's a connection, and it's really it's, it's phenomenal. So are, are the two of you, do you have another book planned? We do. We're, we're working on stuff all the time. We never stop, Barbara. We just find this so fascinating and so much fun that we're always following whatever thread we come across. And sometimes they pan out and sometimes they don't, but we're well, always I, looking. I think- uh, I, sorry, okay. jo, uh, Barbara. I have to tell you that our greatest asset in this um, writing partnership is Janet's intuition. She came across a little building in the grounds of the Capitol in uh, Washington, D.C., which is called the Summer House. It's a very simple, humble, brick-built structure. But Janet just knew in her soul that there was something significant about it. And this will figure prominently in our next book because we could talk virtually for another two hours just about what the summer house can do. So our work is far from finished. <laughs> well, I think the greatest part of all of this is that that when you're uncovering mysteries that go back thousands and thousands of years, there's always new levels. Thank you so much, both of you. This has been such a great show. I so appreciate your being with me. We've loved oh, thank it. you. Thank you, Barbara. 